Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. And hello, Las Vegas. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas, also broadcasting across the wide, fruited, or deserted plains. I don't know why you'd be listening if you're in a deserted plain. Oh, but wait, we live in a desert in Las Vegas, so, you know... Whatevs, guys. Whatevs. Um, lots to talk about today. I was a little concerned at the beginning of the week. I was praying about what to talk about on this program. I was like, God, I don't have any topics. Like, none. I got nothing for this week. But, you know, Americans just continue to provide. Specifically those in the realms <laughs> of politics. Just when you think there's nothing to talk about, somebody says something just, you know, unintelligent or does something that you think no one could ever possibly do and then boom program is born but before we get to all of the fun and exciting things happening in politics because really they're not all that fun and exciting let's talk about something that is fun and exciting okay today is a very special day today is a very biblical day today is the day when the events of a bible story that you know unfolded and we know that today's the day because it matches the Jewish calendar, which is in the Hebrew calendar. It, we, we know today's the day. And I just think that's so cool. So let me tell you a little bit about what day it is, starting with Mordecai. Or Mordecai, depending on your pronunciation. I'm going to go with Mordecai, just because if I start saying Mordecai, which is probably a more accurate uh, way to pronounce his name. The thing is, growing up, uh, flannel graph always taught me that it was Mordecai. And so if I start saying Mordecai, then I'm going to start saying Mordecai, and then you're going to be like, who are you talking about? So we're just going to say Mordecai, right? When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes. That's a really awkward thing, isn't it? Like you just tore up your clothes and you're wearing sackcloth and you're covered yourself in ashes. I don't... It's not a pretty picture. And went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Get the picture. There is this dude who's dressed like a crazy man. Screaming. Crying. Freaking out. Outside the gate of the White House. That's basically what's going on right now. Okay. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment or clothes to clothe Mordecai, and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend unto her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. Like, yo, Uncle Mordecai, or Cousin Mordecai, to be more biblically accurate, why are you standing outside the gate like this? Put, put something on here. 
So Hatak went forth to Mordecai under the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king, to make supplication unto him, and to make request before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again Esther spake unto Hatak, and gave him commandment unto Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whatsoever, whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in to the king in thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's Esther chapter 4, verse 14, the last part of that verse. Mordecai saying to Esther, I, I understand the risks. I know what's going on. But if you don't do anything, God is going to use somebody else to rescue his people. But you and all your relatives, we're, we're going to die. And maybe, just maybe, God puts you in this position that you're in right now to be able to have the opportunity to do something about this. And if you've ever read the book of Esther or you've seen one of the many movies that has been made of this, you know how the story goes. There's an evil Haman and uh, he's plotting against the Jews. And Esther, after she hears from Mordecai, says, all right, you know what? I'm going to go into the king. If I perish, I perish. And she goes into the king. She says, hey, uh, all I want is for you to come to a feast that I'm going to make for you and Haman. And so Haman and, and the king uh, go and they go to a, a feast. And this repeats itself. And eventually Esther tells the king what she really wants. And that is, hey, uh, there's somebody out there that wants to kill me and kill all of my people. And oh, by the way, his name is Haman. And then the king has Haman hung on a gallows that he had made for Mordecai. And there's a whole backstory. And it's really pretty cool. And if you don't know the history of where Haman came from and like his family tree and how that traced back and the conflict of his family with Israel prior to this point, incredible story. Like the Bible is just full of stuff that you're like, wait, what? Uh, amazing, amazing story. And so the king has Haman killed. The Jews are given the decree that they can defend themselves. And uh, and Mordecai is exalted to the uh, to um, to high position within the uh, the the realm. Becomes second uh, to the king. Now, the Jews defend themselves. Haman is promoted, and at the end of the book, we read this. <sighs> On the thirteenth day of the month Adar, and on the fourteenth day of the same rested they, and made it a day of feasting and of gladness. This is the day, the 13th day was the day that they were to die. 
But the Jews that were at Shushan, which was where the palace was, where Esther and Mordecai would have been, assembled together on the 13th day and on the 14th day. And on the 15th day of the same, they rested and made it a feast of gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the 14th day of the month of Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions one to another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned from them uh, from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor and the jews undertook to do as they begun and as mordecai had written unto them wherefore they called these days purim after the name of pur therefore all the words of this letter and all of that which they had seen concerning this matter in which they come unto them the jews, the jews ordained uh, and took upon them and upon their children and upon all such as joined themselves unto them so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation every family every province every city and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews nor the memorial of them perish from among their children then Esther the queen the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim so it was established by Esther, by Mordecai, among the Jewish people. It's it's written in black and white in your Bible, uh, the celebration of Purim. And it has existed throughout Jewish history. I believe that Jesus would have celebrated Purim because he was Jewish, and this is what Jewish families did. They celebrated, and they still do today, they celebrated God's deliverance in the story of Esther, whose Hebrew name would have been Hadassah, but we, we call her Esther because that's what she became known as. But Jesus, most likely, I would say 99.9% chance that, that Jesus' family celebrated Purim because he was Jewish, and that's what Jewish families did then, just as Jewish families continue to do this today. And it's I, I've been to Purim parties. That is fantastic. The traditions live on, and the main traditions of, of Purim are our families will send... Uh, give gifts to the poor. It's a it's a great time of giving in the Jewish commu community and they will send uh, uh, food, gifts of food. So like think um, think uh, fruit baskets or food baskets, gift baskets full of food uh, to friends and family as they celebrate the story of Esther. And there's there's become you know traditions that come in and there's costumes and it's fun and and there's the stomping uh, the, the tradition is as you read through you read through the the Esther scroll um, for Purim and as you're reading through it one of the ways that children are active and participate is any way anytime that Haman's name is said you stomp your feet and you make noise that's what the groggers are for if you've ever seen the groggers uh, you want to pound out the memory of of Haman essentially. And so there, there's different uh, there's different customs that have arisen over Purim itself, but the celebration has remained, and we know that today is a day because just it would be it would be like us saying, well, how do you know that July Fourth is actually the day that you celebrate July Fourth? You would just stand there shaking, scratching your head, like, um, because it's a, it's the same day on the calendar. The date is the same date that's how we that's how we know well the hebrew calendar exists today and the 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 14th uh of adar would be today today is a celebration of purim in the jewish community it's a it, it's it's uh, 
sometimes I think that we in the Christian community, we miss out on some of what God uh, would love for us or that th- that we could enjoy, that we could experience, that we could celebrate uh, because of our, our own traditions that we've adopted and other traditions that we've rejected. But it is always amazing to me the, the energy that we put into traditions that we have created um, while shunning traditions that are actually in the Bible. But, you know, I, 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 to me it doesn't make sense that we celebrate Christmas and Easter. And I know that sounds terrible probably, but think about it for a second. It's not actually in there. Now you're like, no, there is the word Easter in the KJV. You're right, it is there, but they're talking about something different. Hate to break it to you. Um, <laughs> there's great debate on the the one instance of the usage of the word Easter in the King James Bible is a translation of the word of the of the word Pascha, which in the 28 other instances where it's used in the New Testament, it's referencing Passover. Uh, and then there are so there are scholars that say, well, it's actually talking about Passover. There are others that say, no, this is referring to the the pagan holiday that was known as Easter at that time. Now, regardless, I I fully embrace celebrating Easter. I'm inviting people to come and celebrate Easter with us at church uh, in in a few weeks because Easter today, what we call Easter, is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's not you know specifically outlined in Scripture. You know, on this day, you will celebrate the resurrection of our Messiah. It makes sense. It's a good celebration. I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate Easter. Please, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying, okay? Uh, Christmas is probably a much better example because nowhere in Scripture do we see anybody else celebrating the birthday of Jesus besides the shepherds and the angels and uh, the wise men, but they probably didn't actually come to see him on his actual birthday. So, And we don't know the actual day that he was born or even the month for that matter, but we just made up this holiday essentially and said this is Christmas. This is the day that we celebrate that Jesus is born. And I love Christmas. It's my favorite holiday of the entire year. But it's not actually in the Bible, right? You follow me? I, I know some people are going to get really irritated and probably a little frustrated with me right now. But I'm just saying, I don't. I, I love these celebrations. They are celebrations of good biblical uh, events and, and world-changing events. The most world-changing events in all of time, except for obviously creation itself because the world didn't exist before then. But what I'm saying is there's nowhere in Scripture is it, oh, hey, this is what we want you you need to celebrate the day that Jesus is born. It's just, it's not there. I, I love Christmas. It's a great celebration. I fully support Christmas, okay? Not all of our worldly traditions that have come to be associated with it, but overall, y- you following me? But then we have these other, uh, and I won't even get into all of the, all of the feasts of the Lord. That's, uh, we could go there. But I'm just saying when it comes to the feast of Purim, uh, the celebration of Purim, Jesus probably probably celebrate this probably celebrate Hanukkah too to be honest with you but we can talk about that another time but John chapter 10 is pretty clear that he did anyway um Jesus celebrated this holiday it's an awesome holiday it's a great time to talk to your kids about the story of Esther and to celebrate and to have fun and to have a good time all centered around something that's actually in the Bible you can read the real story of this is what happened in this empire on this day like that's just so cool to me but, you know, we, we, by and large, the Christian community doesn't even acknowledge that Purim is happening, <laughs> let alone celebrate it in any way. But uh, the Purim parties that I've been to, some of the most fun uh, celebrations ever, because you're, you're reading scripture and you're celebrating a biblical event together. It's just, it's a, it's a great thing. And I would encourage you, you know, I'm not saying you need to start celebrating uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or something, unless you want to. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, 
In fact, I think that God promises blessings for those that decide to to keep those things and to observe feasts, but there's no obligation to do so, I don't believe. But uh, And the same thing would be true of Purim. There's no obligation for you to, to read the book of Esther or to talk about the book of Esther or to, to don costumes or to buy groggers or to be generous on this day. That's not, there's no obligation to you as a Christian to do any of that, okay? But my question is, if Jesus did, why, why would you not? Why would you not? Like, this is just a fun day. It's a fun day to read the book of Esther. It's a fun day to talk about the book of Esther. And, you know, it's, it's, the book of Esther is so fascinating because it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. It's the only book, the entire Bible, where God is not specifically mentioned. But his presence permeates throughout the entire story. Uh, you can see God working behind the scenes to 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 shift and mold uh, the hearts of different individuals and circumstances and processes to to make His will happen. And that, for me, and, and not even just for me, this is this is a um, this is the the one of the main teachings of the book of Esther is you may not be able to see what God is doing. God may not be visible, if you will. We don't see God's name in the book of Esther at all. But we can see that despite not knowing what God was doing, God was still working. And all around us, every day that is happening, we may not know what God is doing. We may not even uh, feel like we're part of God's plan, but God is always working. And for those that love God, everything isn't always good, but he is always working the circumstances and the, s- and the events and the people and, and problems in our life are always working together for good. Not that they're good themselves, but that they're working together for good, much like in the book of Esther. And that's just, what better way, you know, to, to have a conversation like that with your kids and with your family than to, for family devotions, just read Talk about the story of Esther. You know, the whole book is, is, is a little bit lengthy. Um, I think it's like 12, 12 chapters, 10 chapters in the book of Esther. So it's a, it's a little bit long. I get that. You know, maybe just read the highlights or tell the story. One of the traditions of, of Purim is to actually have your children act out the story of Esther. Why not? That That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just saying, why not? Wouldn't it be kind of fun to have your kids make one of your kids play the the role of Mordecai another kid could play Esther they can have more than one part and just you know for family devotions just have some fun today and tell your kids see here where it says Purim on the 14th day of Adar that's today this happened today years and years and years and years and years and years and years ago but it was on today just like how July 4th we celebrate what happened on July 2nd but so maybe that's not a perfect example but you know (laughs) you know what I'm saying Teach your kids the Bible and make it fun. And this is a great way today to teach your kids the Bible in a fun way and to where they can, every time then that they come across the story of Esther in Sunday school or in school or anywhere else, or that they read the story of Esther in their Bible, they'll be like, I remember when my family talked about Purim on the day that it was Purim, which is what's in this book of Esther. I guarantee you they'll remember it if this is if you choose to to do something around the book of Esther on this day.
it's just it, to me it's cool and i know that has nothing at all to do with anything we usually talk about on thursdays because thursdays we usually dive deep into the realms of the politics and talk about all the filth that's happening in the world today actually not all the filth i usually leave the vast majority of the filth out because it's a family program but because it's a family program i wanted to tell you about purim so that you could know what's happening today and uh and just maybe maybe just maybe just dive in a little bit just thought. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, we will go into those realms of the politics that you've all been waiting for, undoubtedly, with bated breath, which is that's just a weird saying. But anyway, we'll return momentarily. This is 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. All right, we have returned. This is KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. I'm Crystal Heath, and this is The Friddle Show. You can uh, go listen to past episodes of the program, or if you missed the whole first segment, you can go to I, I, I was gonna say iCloud. You could go to iCloud, but that's not where you would find the show. iTunes and SoundCloud is where you would want to go if you want to listen uh, to past episodes of the program or the earlier part of the program, which you may have missed if you are just tuning in now. Actually, if you're just tuning in now, then you definitely missed it. So you can go there. Uh, we did not do any politics. Shocking, I know, in the whole first segment. But I'm about to lay it on you right now, okay? Uh, we're going to start with this. There's a Nevada bill that would allow some 14-year-olds to drive. Assembly Bill 213 seeks to expand an existing state law to allow rural Nevadans as young as 14 years old to drive themselves to school in small towns and counties where the school district doesn't provide transportation. The Assemblywoman is backed by, uh, or I'm sorry, the bill is backed by Assemblywoman Alexis Hansen, uh, a Republican from Sparks, Nevada, that would give uh, charter school students that privilege regardless of where their school is located. So... Um, yeah, uh, that means that, uh, even in places like Washoe County and here in Clark County, if your student attends a charter school and is 14 years old, they could drive themselves, uh, to school. Chris Edwards from here in Las Vegas and, uh, Keith Pickard from down in Henderson are supporting the measure. The bill is going to be discussed or is, is going to a hearing today, this afternoon, um, in the Growth and Infrastructure Committee. Now, Nevada's drivers can already get a learner's permit at the age of 15 and a half, as long as they bring a passenger who's 20, 21 uh, with them. Um, we do already allow some drivers to, uh, to with learner's permits, as, uh, allow as young as 15, excuse me. South Dakota... Uh, issues learner's permits at the age of 14 and restricted licenses at the age of 14 and a half. So, you know what? I, I'm torn on this bill. Let me, let me explain to you why. I, as a 14-year-old, was an incredibly responsible 14-year-old. Probably one of the two most responsible 14-year-olds I've ever met in my entire life. I'm not saying that in any way to build myself up there's n I get no benefit from having been a 14 year old responsible 14 year old at this point in my life okay but but I'm just saying if I I could have driven at 14 and that would have been fine because I was a responsible 14 year old um I don't think that most 14 year olds are responsible enough 
to the point where they could actually do this. To be perfectly honest with you, I'm not even sure that many 16-year-olds should be driving. Um, but that's another story for another time. But 14, <sighs> I, it's, it's difficult because we set an age standard as an arbitrary standards. And, uh, you know, 14-year-olds mature at different levels and paces. And boys and girls have different uh, skill advancement at different times. And, you know, I, it's just, it's difficult when we do an across-the-board thing like this. And that's what we have to do because of how our, our government works. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't... I don't think it's wise for us to open this up to students who attend any charter school in Las Vegas that would be 14 years old driving. I, I mean, I, I just, I'm not a fan of that. I, I understand the rural aspect of it, and a lot of these kids that are in the rural counties are probably already driving tractors and, and four-wheelers and combines and things that I would never even be able to drive. So, honestly, I'm I'm okay with the with the 14-year-old drivers in the rural counties because they're, I'm telling you, they're already, if they're growing up in farm country, they're already driving anyway. Uh, we're just allowing them to do so on public roadways instead of just, you know, around their farms. Um, as long as it's a, a limited license to where it's just allowing them to take themselves to school and back, okay. No passengers. I don't think that a 14-year-old should be transporting anyone regardless of if they're responsible or enough or or not or live in a rural county or not um so i i'm both in favor and against this bill if that makes sense i'm in favor of it in the rural counties i'm not in favor of it in uh in cities and i'm only in favor of it if it has restrictions of of uh no passengers and um only to and from uh school so that's that's my thought. You may have different thoughts. That's cool. You can share them with me on Facebook or Twitter. You can find me there at The Frittle. Or better still, share them with your representatives and senators. Like I said, uh, this bill is going to hearing uh, hearings today. So what do you think? 14-year-olds driving in Las Vegas? Yes? No? Maybe so? Let the people know because they're going to be voting on it. And pretty soon you may be stopped at a red light sitting next to a 14-year-old. And yeah. Their insurance, by the way. Oh my goodness, that's going to be expensive. So it's become super trendy this week among Democratic candidates for some reason to continue to push this issue of abolishing the Electoral College because somehow the Electoral College is what's wrong with our country and not, you know, people's hearts. Uh, Elizabeth Warren tweeted out earlier this week that every vote matters. We need to get rid of the Electoral College so that presidential candidates have to ask every American in every part of the country for their vote, not just those in battleground states. Except that's not how it works, and I'll explain that to you in just a minute. But if you got rid of the Electoral College, you would actually disenfranchise more voters, not less. Candidates would be talking to fewer voters in fewer states. Not more. All right. Also, um, there's this whole thing about the Constitution. Our founding fathers, they did a pretty good job. In fact, there's only twice, I believe it's twice in our entire history 
that the person who lost the popular vote won the Electoral College. Now, those were in recent history, uh, so Democrats are, are not liking that, but only twice has this not worked. But the, the, the Electoral College, the whole purpose of it is to ensure that our president is elected by a diverse group of voters from all over the country as a representation of all the people, not just those living in the most populated state. Or states, rather. Because this is what would happen. If we get rid of the Electoral College, California and New York would essentially determine who becomes our president every single election. That's not how it works in this country because we're not a democracy. We are a democratic republic. And one of the foundational elements of us being a democratic republic is the way the Electoral College works. So if we, if we truly want every vote to actually count, getting rid of the Electoral College is the opposite of that. Because without the Electoral College, the concerns of states that are less populated uh, don't get hurt. Presidential candidates are not going to go to Wyoming or Nebraska uh, when swinging 1% of the vote in California is worth more in the overall popular vote than swinging you know, 30-40% of the vote in, uh, in Wyoming or Nebraska or even Iowa. No, they're going to go to places like like Florida, like Texas, like California, like New York. Densely populated urban areas will suddenly become much, much, much more vocal in our, in our electoral process that happens. Essentially what you're going to see is you're going to see places like San Francisco, places like uh, Seattle, places like Washington, D.C. Densely populated urban areas New York City will be choosing the president. <sighs> There's another problem with this whole idea of abolishing the Electoral College. Um, there's a difference between a plurality and a majority when it comes to winning the popular vote. If neither uh, candidate in our current setup with the Electoral College, gets a majority of votes in the Electoral College, then, we've talked about this before on the program, then the election goes to the House of Representatives, and then they go on and determine who the winner is. What happens, though, if there's no Electoral College, and also don't have a majority winner in the popular vote? Uh... Same thing. The House would then determine the president. And by the way, approximately 32% of U.S. elections have not had a candidate who received the majority of the popular vote. A plurality, yes, but not a majority. So think about that. That would be every third presidential election, the president being determined by the House of Representatives, which, by the way, right now, that would mean that Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are picking your president. That doesn't sound like every vote counting. That doesn't sound like every American getting a voice. That sounds like a nightmare. Um... <sighs> 
Also, what Democrats are largely leaving out of this whole conversation is that the Electoral College has not failed their candidates. In fact, it has helped them. In 2016, the Electoral College worked exactly as it is supposed to because Hillary Clinton uh, had a 6 million vote victory in California and New York, which canceled out her 3 million vote loss in the other 48 states. Did you catch that? Hillary's 6 million vote victory in California and New York canceled out her 3 million vote loss in the 48 other states. It's only because of the electoral, like, uh, the electoral college did exactly what it was supposed to do for Mrs. Clinton. <sighs> oh, and by the way, if we get rid of the electoral college, people are like well well it, the electoral college favors poor rural red states over urban blue states as if to suggest that those who are poor their votes should count less than those who are wealthy no the electoral college numbers reflect the population numbers of the state so if you have more people in california you have more electoral college votes than, say, the people of Iowa. All right? So it corresponds. It's meant to be a check and balance system, and it has worked exceptionally well all throughout our history. There is no reason to get rid of the electoral college. And in my opinion... Democrats should think less about changing the rules of the game and just focus on playing the game and playing the game well. Like, just just put up a good candidate. Which, by the way, ironically, uh, it's... Uh, when I looked yesterday, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Beto O'Rourke are leading right now the uh, Democratic primary. Why is that funny to me? Because... Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but not too long ago, the Republican Party was being hailed as the party of the old white men, and those were the only candidates that Republicans liked. Do you remember those days? They're not too far gone. <laughs> and now Democrats, their top three out of like the 500 that are running for president this year, it's uh, Joe Biden, who is, I believe, 76 years old, uh, Bernie Sanders, 77-year-old socialist, and Beto O'Rourke who has an incredibly questionable past, but apparently we're not allowed to talk about that at all. We don't we don't talk about Beto's past. Or is it Beto? 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 Can somebody, somebody fill me in. Is it Beto or Beto? I've seen people very strongly... I guess I need to listen to him actually say his name, huh? That's really irresponsible of me. Never have heard him say his name and think that I can talk to you about him. But, you know, it is... <laughs> I'm going to go do that during our uh, during our next break, by the way. I'm going to go find out how we actually pronounce his name. Um, but yeah, why why is his why is his past off limits? Justice uh, Justice Kavanaugh's past was not in any way off limits and didn't have anything to the level of questionable activities that you see in O'Rourke's past, but we're not going to talk about those. We're not even going to mention those. We're just going to let it slide. You know what else we should be letting slide? Um, John McCain. Mr. President. 
I so appreciate everything that you have done uh, for this country on levels of policy and internationalism not nationalism that was the wrong word entirely what he's done for what he's done for Israel what he's done for our economy what he's done for jobs what he's done uh, even with the Supreme Court though not my most favorite picks has been it's been pretty good but um the the president has just some sort of vendetta against John McCain. I, I mean, I think it's got to be personal, but he just, he just won't let this go. Senator McCain was an American hero. He served his country well. He served in the Senate. You may not have agreed with his policies or his politics, but he was an American hero. And now he is in his eternal state. I don't know what that is. I just know that he's in it. I, I should say I don't know. Well, anyway, I'm not going to go there. He's deceased, okay? We, you don't need to continue a feud with a dead man. Just let it go. But then in between this constant barrage against John McCain, we have the president now going after Kellyanne Conway's husband. He tweeted... Specifically yesterday, he tweeted, George Conway, often referred to as Mr. Kellyanne Conway by those who know him, is very jealous of his wife's success and angry that I, with her help, didn't give him the job he so desperately wanted. I barely know him, but just take a look. A stone-cold loser and husband from uh, the really bad place that you go when you die if you don't know Jesus as your savior. Okay? This is what... The president is tweeting. I, I just feel that we have more important issues on the table. I think that sometimes civility is the better option. And I think when you have these tweets that are just unnecessary, they do a disservice to the presidency and to the president himself and to the image of what we would like the presidency to represent. And quite frankly, I think there are a lot of people that if someone, if their boss said this statement in reference to their spouse or their marriage, they would quit on the spot. I mean, it's, it's not acceptable. It's unpresidential. It's, it's immature and it's just, un, it's unnecessary. You don't need to do this. And, and like I said, Kudos to the president for his work on the economy, uh, for his Israel relations, his pro-life policies, uh, his work with the Supreme Court, with energy. Uh, there's, there's so much good that he has done as president, but the tweets and the rhetoric, it just it needs to stop. It, I, and I don't know if it will. I hope that it will, because it's, it's just not needed, and it's a bad look for the president. Also... Democrats are literally cheering on infanticide and other absolutely horrific policies. They are imploding from the inside out. There is no reason to say stuff like this. Stop circling the wagons and then shooting at the people that are inside the wagons. Okay? It just needs... 
and I know some people they they love the the drama and the the bombastic aspect of this all, but in the world of politics, if the other side is self imploding, focus on those issues. Focus on the fact that Democrats are cheering on the murder of full-term babies left to die. Talk about how insane the Green New Deal is. Talk about the fact that socialism doesn't work. I mean, there are so many policies being pushed by Democrats in this election cycle. You could literally focus on them all day. You could tweet about them all day. You want the f attention to be out there, not bringing it in here. Like, s just that it just needs to stop, in my opinion. Again, very grateful for policies the president has put in place and much of how he has governed. But, like, we just need to turn Twitter off. Like, just don't tweet. Don't... Uh, don't get the news cycle back. When you... When on, on something that's unnecessary... <sighs> when it could be about all of the stuff that Democrats are saying. And I know that's a long way around of rambling on, but it just, it's, it's frustrating to me. As an individual, as an American, and as a conservative, it is frustrating. As someone who wants the president to succeed and do well, it's frustrating. Okay? That's all I'm saying. But uh, I, I'd encourage you to consider what things you support and what things you do not. A blind following is not a good following. That's all I'm going to say to that regard. <sighs> also, for those of you that live here in Las Vegas, we are in the middle of... Actually, we're coming to the end of the week of early voting for our municipal primaries. We do have municipal primaries happening uh, across the valley right now. Uh, in my district, there was just uh, one race, a uh, bipartisan race for um, city council. Uh, both candidates on the ballot would have been and are uh, opposite to me, uh, politically speaking, on major issues. So what I did was I reached out to each of them with three questions regarding issues that would not be issues that I would normally base my vote on. But since I know that one of them is going to win anyway, so one of these people is going to represent me, uh, the issues that I normally vote on, my big topic issues, these people really don't have any power over. So I found three issues that matter to me um, for my community, and I it reached out to each one of my candidates with these three issues. Uh, one of them responded, and responded in a way that surprised me, quite honestly. Um, for being on different sides of the political aisle, we had very much in common uh, when it came to these three issues, and so I was, I was pleased to... Uh, to then cast my vote for that individual. Um, but I would encourage you, don't just throw out your, your your sample ballot. Don't just toss it aside and be like, oh, it's not a presidential election, so it doesn't matter. It does matter. This is where politics start. You've got to be involved locally because what happens locally dictates what's happening on a state level. What happens on the state level dictates what happens on the national level. It all starts right here. These people are taking the time and the money to invest uh, in in s public service and in serving you and in serving your family and serving your city, the least you can do 
uh, is give them the courtesy of at least trying to find out uh, what they stand for and see if there is someone that you can vote for. Now, sometimes uh, in elections like this, there just isn't. Um, and it's hard when you live in a city tends to be more uh, leftist than conservative. And I know much of our listening office listening audience uh, would be more conservative. So sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you can't find uh, that common ground to where you could vote uh, for one or the other candidate. Just remember, if you have two nonpartisan, quote unquote, uh, individuals on your ballot, one of them is going to represent you. So uh, you have to make that determination between you and God if it is better for you to abstain or if it is better for you to pick whichever you might be more in line with. I chose the latter. This time, there have been times in the past when I just simply haven't been able to vote for either one. But uh, just a reminder, those of you in Las Vegas, uh, tomorrow, I believe, is when early voting ends here in the city. Uh, and then the actual election day is in April. But I would encourage you, get out, vote early. Um, actually, not tomorrow. I think Saturday is the end of early voting. But get out and vote early. It's super easy. No lines right now. You can get in, get out, uh, be done, do your civic duty. I'd encourage you to do so. Don't forget, also, if you're here in Las Vegas, join us for church on Sunday, 9.30 or 11.15 Sunday morning. We'd love to have you and your family here uh, with us. And uh, there's great stuff going on all morning. I was going to say that it's the last day of Connections classes, but it's not. That's actually the following Sunday. The 31st is our last uh, day of classes before the break. So you got two more weeks, guys. Two more weeks to enjoy Connections classes before our spring break and Easter. Uh, then is right around the corner. Make sure you are inviting your friends and family. Use the Easter invitations that are available here at the church. And as always, you can find us online by visiting our website, kvxl101.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here same time, same place tomorrow. Have a great day, everyone.